Kevin Stickelman is the CEO of the National Ability Center, a nonprofit organization that is a leader in adaptive recreation, offering outdoor adventures that cater to those with a different ability or disability and programs designed with inclusion as a first priority. The NAC rallies around the belief that our differences make us stronger and that recreating together can change our world. By including family and friends in their programming, the NAC strives to reinforce relationships and build support systems that exist beyond the initial program experience. Kevin is here to share with us more about this amazing program and all the good that they are doing. Let's take a listen. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Great. I'm so happy to have you here today to share with us about the National Ability Center. So the National Ability Center is recognized as a leading nonprofit organization that provides world-class adaptive recreation and outdoor adventures for individuals and families of differing abilities. Can you tell us more about the NAC and what particular goals drive the heart of this organization? Sure, I can. The, the National Ability Center has been around since 1985 here in Utah, and since that time, we've been providing all sorts of outdoor activities, programs, and educational opportunities for people of all different abilities. Our participants range from disabled military veterans and their families through kids with autism to wheelchair users, uh, cancer survivors, um, all sorts of other infectious disease, uh, you know, recoveries and things like that. So we serve, you know, on average over 7,500 unique individuals a year. We'll do in a, in a good year outside of COVID about 35,000 lessons a year. And that is across all of our activities from skiing and snowboarding to mountain biking and rafting and equestrian programs, summer camps, you know, you name it and it's outside. We're probably doing it. You and your staff are committed to breaking down barriers for individuals with disabilities, both mentally, physically, and emotionally, and you work to provide a safe space to experience life fully through outdoor recreation. Can you give us some examples of the individuals in your program and how this type of program benefits them most? Sure. You know, a, a lot of the individuals who come to us um, have some sort of anxiety about getting outside and into recreation. And maybe that's because they've never done it in their life. They maybe had a pre-existing congenital type of condition where they felt like they were not able to get out and get on a bike, or maybe it's somebody who was in a car wreck and wound up as an amputee as a result of that. And they're scared to get back out and try skiing, which maybe that was something they really enjoyed prior to that, that accident. So that anxiety, is really one of those barriers that first has to be broken down. And we do that by, you know, not handholding. A lot of that is, is self-empowerment. We, we let them set their own challenges and let them set their own goals and work with them to accomplish that. You know, for some of our people, day one might simply be putting on a ski boot and learning how to get that boot back in a ski after you've had an accident. Um, some other people, it might be running, you know, class three rapids in, in Moab on the Colorado river. And so being able to have goals that are specific to that individual, specific to that individual's family, maybe because we do a lot of recreation with family members, um, is really the first step in breaking down those barriers. And then from then on, we build upon that. So once you've hit your first goal, then there's a second goal and a third goal and a progression starts to take place where that individual, hopefully, after spending time with us, is able to go out and do some of these activities on their own without the special equipment or this, the special knowledge and instruction of our staff. 
Um, sometimes special equipment is, is required, you know, lifelong. If you're a wheelchair user, you're, you're going to probably use a sit ski for um, skiing in the future. But we've shown you how to use that equipment, get comfortable in that equipment, and maybe even help you source a piece of equipment so that you don't have to rely on an organization like us to be able to get out and, and do things in the outdoors. That's awesome. So you're introducing people to activities that they maybe didn't realize they were capable of doing. That's correct. And I, you know, I think that we take it a bit further because some of our participants are elite level athletes that continue to come to us for additional coaching and development. Maybe they're on the, the World Cup ski circuit or the World Cup snowboard circuit, and they're coming back to us year after year to, to better perfect those skills and to compete on an international level. So we run the gamut from beginners all the way up to, you know, expert level worldwide competitive athletes. And I would imagine that for many people in your program, they may otherwise struggle to feel included. Can you tell us about how your organization works to foster inclusion and to create experiences that will truly help your program participants thrive outside of the program as well? Sure. You know, I I think inclusion and diversity right now is a pretty um, frontline topic in conversation across the, the country. And, you know, while the NAC is imperfect and we still have long ways to go, like do many organizations with being able to be inclusive and diverse on all levels, we do have a very diverse and inclusive culture here. We, you know, whether it's participants or staff members or volunteers, we welcome all sorts of people from across the spectrum. Um, I think it's, you know, some of the unique things to the NAC is from day one, we've been an organization based on being inclusive, no matter your ability and no matter um, whether that's physical or mental, um, whether that's a learning disability, we've welcomed all into our, our organization to be part of it as participants and volunteers and staff. And it, it rings true. We're a, a very diverse staff with broad backgrounds. Our, our volunteers, which number close to 2000, are from across the spectrum of humanity and society. And they're all here for their own reasons. Some of them are, are very much interested in being part of delivering programs. Some of them want to work behind the scenes. And our participants come to us in the same way. You might have um, groups of people who are very outgoing. Um, they have a lot of rapport. It might be a, a group of veterans who worked together in the past when they were in the service who are now coming here to overcome their own, um, you know, their own obstacles in, in a newfound life with a disability. Or it might be that really hesitant, um, you know, 10 year old kid who is on the autism spectrum who really is challenged in functioning with groups of people and is looking for a way to come here and find a home and find their own success. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty about our programs and about the organization is it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from or what your history is or what color your skin or, um, you know, what your, uh, you know, sexual orientation or, or preferences be in life. There's a home here at the National Ability Center. And so in keeping with the topic of inclusion, can you tell us more about the science of inclusion and how we can all work to create more space for adaptability? You know, I think it starts with, and and this predates the current societal conversation on inclusion, but for a long time, we believed that, um, you know, taking people and segregating them and putting them in a box and calling them an adaptive person or a disabled person 
Um, that in and of itself was not an inclusive method of going forward. And so from day one, we've, we've also believed that people who come to our programs and are part of the National Ability Center should be able to enjoy what they're doing with friends and family members. And so for a long time, the NAC was very unique in what we did because it wasn't just the kid in a wheelchair that came to our program. It was that kid and their brothers and sisters and mom and dad, or maybe it was an aunt and uncle or, or friends because when you go out and recreate and when you go out and do things, whether it's a ski trip or a bike ride, a lot of times you're doing that with those people who socially are around you all the time, your family and your friends. And a lot of, a lot of adaptive programs for the longest time have just taken that one individual and only catered to their needs. And that left a big hole to fill because maybe from a physical standpoint, they were accomplishing something and felt like they had achieved a new goal in recreation but the hole that was there and what was missing was that social experience with their friends and fam family members. And so for us, that has always been something that our DNA is built on is inclusion in whatever that social group is that's so important to you and making sure that you have the same opportunities as an able-bodied person to be out there and not just recreate, but socialize while you're doing it and feel empowered and be able to tell stories of that experience, you know, for years to come. And that inclusivity piece, you know, we see once again, each and every day in our programs, the, the number of people who come here and feel like they are part of something larger than themselves. I would say far outnumbers those that come here and feel like they're on a, a solo path of, of adaptive recreation. So you're an adaptive amputee yourself. Can you tell us more about how your own personal experience of overcoming adversity in your own life helps drive your passion for leading the NAC? You're right. So I, I was born uh, without a portion of my lower right leg and had what was left of that lower right leg amputated when I was 13 months old. So I have, for my entire life, walked in the shoes of our participants each and every day. And you know, I, I grew up uh, the oldest of, of three boys in my family. Um, I had I wanted nothing more than to be able to compete with them on an even playing field, whether it was, you know, racing our bikes up and down the street or, or the family Fourth of July baseball game out at my grandma's house. Right. And so I had a drive from an early age to to not see my disability as a barrier to being successful or being able to run in the same circles as my brothers or my friends. And I think that is held true, you know, during my career, which, uh, you know, a long bit of my career was in the ski business. Um, I was a ski instructor and patroller and race coach and, um, you know, went through and, and achieved all of the credentials in that industry, um, on an even playing field as those fully able-bodied. And, and for me, that was an important thing to be able to get out there and, you know, really, um, you know, it, not necessarily compete, but be able to thrive and excel at those things in the skiing world, just as well as those people who had two fully functional legs. Um, you know, a few years ago, that brought me here to the NAC where I could take my experiences and the success I had and hopefully transfer that in a way to impact the lives of the people that we serve here at the National Ability Center. And, you know, I I think that it, it's kind of interesting, um, you know, living in Park City, it's it's cold a lot of the year and you're wearing long pants and a lot of people, you know, don't even realize that I have a prosthetic leg. Um, 
but summertime comes around and if I'm on a rafting trip or, you know, out in one of our other programs wearing shorts, it's like great big eyes opening going, Oh my God, you're an amputee as well. Like we would have never known you ski. Well, we saw you do this, this last winter and just being able to have those conversations about like, yeah, there's a so much possible. Um, even though you might have something that a lot of people would qualify as making you disabled, it really doesn't. A lot of it is in your head and it's, it's a mental thing that you've got to first overcome to say, yeah, I, you know, I can get out there and do this might have to use a different piece of equipment or there might be some modifications in how I go about, you know, recreating or whatever. But at the end of the day, I can still hike and ski and run and all of those other things that, you know, the rest of the population can do. And, um, you know, if, if I'm, you know, I guess one of the ways that I would define success is being able to pass off that inspiration to the people who come here to show them that disability is not always physical. A lot of times, like I said, it starts in your head. And if you can overcome that obstacle, you're going to be successful at what you set out to do. It's, I think it's incredible that you're able to offer that such a strong example to everybody that's in your program as you're leading this organization. That's powerful in and of itself. And the NAC is also committed to providing resources to both active military personnel and veterans and their families through your interactive programming. Can you tell us more about that aspect of your program? Military programs have been with the NAC since inception. We were actually founded in 1985 through a grant from the Disabled American Veterans Organization here in Utah that provided ski and snowboard lessons for disabled veterans at Park City Mountain Resort. And since that time, military has remained important. Right now, it makes up close to 30% of the total programs and services that we provide every year. Our military programs are varied in nature. Some of them focus on for example, um, PTSD and mental health of the veterans who have come back from combat areas. Some of those are, are journeys that they work with us and combined with other organizations who might provide, um, you know, a psychologist or some other sort of therapist that's working on overcoming the trauma side where the NAC and our role in that, that process is to provide recreation, social experiences, goal setting and things of that nature. We also do a lot with military families because once again, going back to that isolation feeling that a lot of our veterans and active duty military members have, it's important that some of the success and the mental health um, well-being for those veterans and, and service members, it has to start with the relationships with their spouse, with their kids. And so a lot of that in the military world, we'll see families come here and stay for several days at a time. And that might've been the first time in years where that family has been able to get out and recreate together or challenge each other or laugh or, you know, experience something other than the day in day out routine that military life brings. And so military, um, you know, for us, we, we also provide a lot of no cost services to veterans and active duty military. And that's through, a variety of grants. We partner with the, the Veterans Administration. We partner with the state of Utah. And those are a couple of big funding sources, um, as well as certain corporations that we work with through granting opportunities to provide those services, no cost to those military and, and veterans. That's fantastic. It's just wonderful that that's such a 
large part of what you do and that it's been a part of your program from the very beginning. Can you tell us about volunteer opportunities with your organization and also how donations will help benefit your ongoing work? Certainly. So as I mentioned a while ago, um, we have almost 2,000 volunteers. I think any any year that number varies a little bit between 1,700 and 2,000, but our volunteer opportunities are pretty vast. We have needs for obviously direct program support and the volunteer um, opportunities go along with that. We have needs for volunteers in our maintenance department. We have a lot of facilities and gear and things like that here to upkeep. We have volunteers that we use for all of our fundraising events. And some of our volunteers may choose to come out and just focus on one certain thing like archery. And they're an expert in that and want to share those skills. Other volunteers we find do a lot of different stuff. They might participate in programs. They might go to the equestrian area and help clean stalls and, you know, muck out the recycled horse stuff um, on a, on a daily basis. We also see volunteers come in and, and do administrative things for us. And so our volunteer opportunities are numerous and a lot of information can be found on our website about those volunteer trainings and orientation times, which we do um, quite often right now um, in, you know, for the last few months with what's going on as far as the pandemic some of those opportunities have been a little more limited just due to the fact that our operations have not been running at 100% for the last couple of months. But our website at discovernac.org is where a lot of that information can be found. As far as donations go, um, about 70% of the people who come to the National Ability Center receive some sort of scholarship. Um, our program fees only cover 28 to 30% of the cost of delivering programs. And so we're very reliant on donations from individuals, from family foundations, from corporations, and, you know, those organizations who provide us grants to keep our programs operating and, and running at the capacity that, that we run them at. So, you know, something as simple as a, a $50 donation can provide you know, the, and offset the cost of a, of a couple archery lessons or a couple cycling lessons. Um, $150 can help cover the cost of a ski lesson for somebody for a day. So any little bit that we can get helps even a $5 donation, you know, helps offset maybe the, the, the feed for horses for a day by buying a bale of hay, whatever that is. Um, so no, no amount is too small, no amount is too large. And every dollar that comes in here counts and goes to work the day that it's received. It's wonderful to know all those different opportunities that you have for volunteers. I think it's great that you're able to offer that many varying options for people to get involved. And also, I will add a link in the show notes here to, for everyone to be able to donate if they you know, choose to support your program, which I hope they do because I think you're doing incredible work. We often speak about community here on this podcast. Can you tell us why you think community is so important, especially when it comes to those who are living with a disability? Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a really good um, topic to, to discuss because a lot of times community um, is what supports and, and provides those abilities for people to thrive if they have some sort of disability or, or limitation um, you know, in their personal life and community in and of itself has the ability to really change somebody's mental attitude about 
how well they're doing. And, and what I mean by that is if you've got a, a community of people, um, whether that's a, a organization or a neighborhood or an entire town or a group of volunteers, whatever that is, who is encouraging by nature and talking about success and, and really, um, pushing somebody to get out there and, and be successful in their own, their own ways, you see that person react in a way that's way different than someone who might be holed up at home on a couch. And I think that one of the challenges in the, in the world of disability is there are so many people out there who truly sit at home on a couch and feel sorry for themselves because they got in a car accident and had a, you know, major injury and feel like they can never do anything again in their life. Or maybe it's somebody with, you know, PTSD who's struggling with substance abuse and they find that the only way out is to sit at home and be by themselves. And if they could get out and be with a group of individuals that they can consider family or they can consider friends and find a new way in life to, to really direct, um, their thought process and direct what they define as success, it has a major impact on their lives. When you come here to the NAC, one of the things that you'll first notice if you stay in our lodge, none of the rooms have televisions in them. And out of the 25 rooms that we have, there's only one television in the whole building in our lodge. And that's upstairs in a community style lounge where people can sit and, you know, watch a football game together on a Sunday or something. But the reason behind that is because a lot of the people that we have come here have some sort of predisposition to isolate, we make it hard to stay in your room. And the rooms have beds, they don't have any couches, the bathrooms are simple. And if you wanna be comfortable, you have to get out and around other people. And it's amazing to see a, a group that might come in and fill all 50 beds in our lodge the transformation from when they get here where you've got a lot of shut doors and only a few people milling around in the dining room to four days later, nobody is in their individual lodge rooms. They're all in the dining room or they're all sitting out on the patio or they're all, you know, hanging out playing foosball, uh, you know, upstairs in, in the community lounge. So I think that just that simple example shows the importance of, community towards the mental aspect of facing disability. I was really curious to hear your answer. And I, I loved your answer because that's, I, I can tell the community is clearly a big part of what your organization is striving to create for the people who participate in your programs. And that's amazing that it comes down to every little detail as far as even the rooms and the TVs and everything that's involved in, in that Goal. That's wonderful. So compassion is another topic I like to touch on here on Be the Good. Would you mind telling us what your own personal definition of compassion is and how you feel we can all best put compassion into action? Yeah, I th you know, I think compassion is certainly important. And I think there's a distinction between, especially in the disabled community, compassion and sympathy, right? I think there's a lot of people out there who feel bad because they see somebody who has some sort of disability that's sympathy, right? Compassion is looking at that person going, you know, man, I've got to get them out there with me on the ski slopes next time and see if I can keep up or man, let's get that person out there on a river trip and show them what the wildlands in the backcountry of Utah look like. 
not feeling bad for them because they have some other, um, you know, factor that they're going to have to overcome to get out there and enjoy things. So compassion is really looking at, at looking at things through a different lens in a way that looks at what you're able to achieve instead of what you're not able to achieve. And that's something that's really, um, since I came to work at the NAC, it's, it's even been a game changer in, in, you know, my mind and how I look at things because, you know, I have met people here that have just defied, um, any, any preconception that I had, um, about what their limitations might be. You know, I have, I just came from an event this morning where we've got hand cyclists that are riding up to the top of a 10,000 foot mountain. And you talk about resilience and grit. Um, what is my compassion for them? It's man, by the end of the day today, their arms are going to be so sore. They're going to be just beat down tired, but you know what? They did that right alongside able-bodied riders who are going to have the same feeling at the end of the day. They're going to, whether, whether they're there on hand cycles or regular mountain bikes, they're going to walk away from the day tired, sweaty, hot, you know, ready to go grab a beer or whatever it is. And that's compassion is feeling the same for those individuals on hand cycles as I do for the, the able-bodied riders who are on, on regular stand-up mountain bikes. Thank you for sharing everything with us today. Uh, lastly, if you can tell my listeners where we can go to donate um, or also how can we best follow along with the NAC on social media to stay tuned into your ongoing work. So the, the best stop for all of that is our website. It's uh, www.discovernac.org. We have links to volunteer opportunities. We have links to our event pages on there, opportunities to donate. And then all of our social media uh, links are also found on our website. So we're pretty active in all the social media realm. And then lastly, if you're ever in Park City, you know, stop by and look us up. We'd love to give people a tour of our facilities here um, and show you what we've got going on. So Fantastic. that's an open invitation. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing all the wonderful work that you do at the NAC with us today. And I hope that this inspires my listeners to reach out, to learn more, and to support all the great work that you're doing. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. And thank you for having, having me on. It's been a good conversation. If you enjoyed this episode of Be The Good Podcast, please like, comment, and share. You can also head on over to www.christymccaffrey.com to access more episodes of Be The Good Podcast, as well as the True Being blog. And remember, we can all find our own way to be the good. Be the good.